So we're going. Um, this week we're on Stanley Kubrick and we watched Clockwork Orange last week. Oh, this is Hannah and this is Gabby. Yeah, and we sit on a sofa and watch movies because we have no life. <laughs> no, we do have a life, but we are so creative that we need. We want our life to be more assimilated. It's a very cinematic life, you mm-hmm. might say. Um, so we watched 2001, A Space Odyssey, another Stanley Kubrick especial. And the thing we like about Kubrick is the fact that he just had no regard for studio productions whatsoever. And he kind of <laughs> just him. showed up and did his own damn thing. <laughs> I love him. I think um, this is a very powerful thing that if you can keep the your ideas... Uh, be loyal to your ideas and not need, you don't have to negotiate your creativity with big studios. So yeah. I, I love that he had that power that not many, not like Steven Spielberg or others could do. He so. didn't have to negotiate his creative vision, but that meant that he wasn't always a success. So, for instance, when this movie came out in 1968, it was like talked really big like people were like oh my gosh this movie's coming out and of course there was the nasa and russian space race to get to the moon and so kubrick wanted his film to come out before then so audiences wouldn't have an idea of what the moon was really like but the film was actually not a huge success when it came out like people were getting high and going to the movie and so they'd be tripping on their mushrooms or whatever um and like i already told you i love this story like some guy was on shrooms and went to see the movie and then he ended up running through the film screen screaming it's god it's god because this movie right like monolith yeah the anyway we'll get to that block monolith but the synopsis of 2001 a space odyssey is an imposing black structure provides a connection between the past and the future in the enigmatic adaption of a short story by revered sci-fi author arthur c clark when dr dave bowman and other astronauts are sent on a mysterious mission their ship's computer system hal h-a-l 9000 uh, begins to display increasingly strange behavior, leading up to a tense showdown between man and machine that results in a mind-bending trek through space and time. Wow. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Mm-hmm. So the film opens up on a scene of... Well, wait. What? One oh, thing okay. I want to just say is that um, there are certain film- filmmakers that are not only driven by commercial success, and Kubrick was one of them. I know it has to be a combination of both because, you know, when he did the shiny, the shiny, no, mm-hmm. the, the, the shining, the shining, <laughs> the shining. When he did the shining, he didn't want to do it, but he did it because most likely he needed to work and have some money, right? <laughs> it was amazing. I loved it, um, but he was not only driven by like commercial success and the the film uh, got like. At that moment, was was not like a good. Uh, it didn't make money, mm-hmm. but after the years, it was interesting enough how how good it did, because people today keep watching the movie. We are buying. I bought it like I rented twice, and I'm gonna buy it. So, <laughs> you know, it's um, it was ahead of time, and but whatever is good in his art somehow, uh, in this case, could reach. Uh, success in it later mm-hmm. like no only that because it was it was uh timely it's like charles dickens novels mm. it's it's made to last you can mm. watch it late years in the future and be like oh yeah this is like still relevant i i relate to this and even though big studios were against his 
movie, uh, you mentioned that some some of them they just left half away of the movie. Yeah. So when the first when the film first came out, um, so this film was um, money made from by from MGM mm-hmm. um, and MGM big wigs who were sitting in the audience walked out of the movie because they thought it was so terrible. And the same thing with other um, important people who went to go see like the opening of the movie. They just walked out and they were like, "Wow, this is terrible." And then the people who stayed just made fun of the movie while they were sitting in the mm-hmm. theaters. And apparently, Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick were both in some of those screenings so I imagine it didn't feel very good for them Mm. Um, and Kubrick I think also was feeling really bad about like the failure of this film Mm because I think he had gotten some um, height in Hollywood he had had some success in Hollywood and I think once you have a taste of that you think that every film that you make from now on is going to be like a big success and his well the film was brilliant but it was like not the right moment for the people there I mean it was ahead of its time and as a filmmaker, I can imagine how frustrating mm-hmm. is that. But at some point, you have to understand that not everyone is going to like your films, and not everyone is going to understand a film with so many concepts like this one. It's like you know, it's not a narrative film that that happens. So many things are said in this film that are more are beyond a normal narrative film. So, but yeah. Uh, it isn't well yeah it's a narrative in kind of like a circular fashion I guess and like you said so Stanley Kubrick had some sort of obsession with wheels and like circular shapes so you see not only kind of like the wheel of life spinning around in this movie but you also see a literal space station and there are really clever shots where you see people standing on the ceiling and walking around in these circles because there's like no gravity in space and so the things the shots that they get to do cinematography wise are really something incredible I mean it his work is an art in and of itself just for some of the incredible shots that he gets of people um, and how it makes you really question you know space and time and that's the purpose of of the movie I think in some ways Mm -hmm. is to make you question uh, what you're seeing Um, so anyway no now should we open up is that okay with you Gabby are you ready to move on okay Um, so the movie opens up and part of it was shot in Namibia Nambia, I don't know, someplace where there's a big desert. And it opens up on a scene of like the dawn of man, and you hear this operatic music. No, actually, I lied. That's not the way it opens up. It opens up on a screen of black, black and it's playing this scary operatic music. And that happens, what, like two other times, I think. And it was a very long, yeah, it happened only once. It was like one at the beginning and one after. After, when it was, after, I, after, I think how? after he reached uh, Jupiter. Oh yeah, after they reached Jupiter on their Jupiter mission, there's another black screen and they're playing more operatic music. Yeah, that's right. Let, maybe look. I think up. I so. Know. I'm not sure about that. So anyway, but I think the concept behind that is really interesting because Kubrick loved um, music, and so there's a lot of operatic kind of like ballet type music Mm -hmm. in this film and what I was thinking about is not only the operatic music but in here um and you know how you dance uh ballets because uh it's not the ballet in itself is vals like the Danubio vals 
that when you bow, when you dance, it's mm-hmm. just turning around and turning around oh. and turning around and turning. That's yes. when, when you go to Austria to see those because it comes from there, uh-huh. and you see them dancing, it's only turning. And yeah, turning. they're doing ama- They're doing tons and tons of turns. Yeah. So that's kind so of that's like the, balls. the the revolution of the space station is kind of like that. Maybe it's that's like why. a dance of turning and yeah. turning like life. So every little detail he puts in his movie is. Uh, it means something. Yeah, and in this case, I think he chose that music for that particular reason for the idea. The of circular the idea movement. They blew that. Yeah, it's that's called. I think the blue Danube. The blue Danube song. I think that's what Danube. However you say that. That's a place in the Nile, I think. Um, but it talks about how the black screen, that's how they envisioned um, the future. It's kind of like they wanted to show this vast blankness, like this mm-hmm. emptiness. And that's why they chose the black monolith as this scientific enigma that was coming. And it was kind of the artificial intelligence that was ahead of humans, ahead of its time, and kind of dictating where we were going into the future. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to shoot that as like an alien race, or and they didn't want to visualize that to the audience as being some sort of monster or gargoyle or creature or whatever because they wanted it to be more like how are we supposed to imagine something that is not created yet you know exactly and it's because we are going to imagine created something from what we know so even though we imagine the the craziest creature or whatever thing is something we know exists somehow we copy from concepts or things or material, things we, we saw. So I think it's, it was a very smart point that they didn't create weird creatures because of that and because of who knows if those monoliths were put by a, a alien aliens or they were there as a like, different level of consciousness mm-hmm. that is higher than what they had in each moment. And you cannot describe, you do, You cannot reach that because it's part of who you are, but it's there, you know, it's like, uh, but you can evolve and try to understand that better and get closer to that knowledge, maybe. Maybe, or you just <laughs> die in the process as happened to many of the humans because Hal freaking killed them. Um, well, so let's start with the... Um, Monkeys. Monkeys. The film opens on a bunch of monkeys in Nambia. Yeah. And we see they're kind of, they're, they're docile at first, you know. They're just hanging out, being monkeys. And I actually didn't know at the very beginning if they were real monkeys or if they were people in costumes. I was mm-hmm. like, I went back and forth on that. Mm. And then they were eating vegetables and competing with vegetarian type, like, animals. Yeah, like very docile, peaceful. Yeah. And they were eating like meat when whenever the something was left over from the leopard as soon as they found like the bone uh-huh. from that skeleton and he, that monkey discovered he could hit stuff and had some power with that bone um he started like um, he getting the it. food yeah getting yeah. the food they wanted but himself and also, like fighting against other group by 
for the territory or for whatever. They yeah, the find. two the two monkeys they once they use the bone as the tool to like kill things essentially, so they yeah. can eat different types of food, like to eat meat, not just vegetables. The two monkey people break up into groups, like uh, that's what it reminded me of. Is was the West Side Story thing, how you have the sharks and the jets, and they're like competing over this territory. Mm. Like the monkeys do that, and then what was it? One monkey comes over in the pond, and like the two alphas are like gonna fight to see who's gonna be on top and then they freaking slaughter one of the monkeys who comes over and they mm. beat him to death with their with their new bone tools and, and they like, wow. show that they because of the, that bone they have power they could dominate something yeah in this case the second group of monkeys ape apes <laughs> and we see, oh, and we see all of that happens after the mysterious appearance of this black monolith mm. Um, in I think something else to be said that I just thought about is the black monolith always seems to appear when all of the planets are aligned. Mm -hmm. Like, have you ever seen the Hercules animated movie where it's like all the planets align and then the Greek gods come out of the earth? Uh, That's what it reminded me of. Is it a cartoon? Yeah, it's a Uh, cartoon. Yeah, the Hercules cartoon. So there's something about all the planets being in alignment and something about like the lunar eclipse with the earth and the moon blocking out the sun, things like that. In history of astrology, Big things apparently have happened mm-hmm. when all the, the, when the planets, planets aligned. For instance, uh, in Egypt, all the pyramids and things and all that were related to some moments or some big destructions uh, in Earth were related to um, astronomic effect, like alignment of planets and that. So the, historically, there was uh, there were moments in in the planet where things happened happen when this thing with the alignment of planets so it's yeah Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke were obviously bringing in some factual data even though this is definitely they based that in real fact or yeah they inspired their story his story because it was Clarke's story in um, something that came from the past from other stories or for yeah he, he had to have a lot of influence from outside sources for sure um so then the monkeys we see they they kind of like they're they're evolving after that black monolith appears and then the next scene we see is like the human race well the thing is when the monkey throw the bomb to the air what is coming down is not the same bomb it transitions but it's the future, transition yes. to the future and it's the spaceship you're right you yeah and funny enough the spaceship have form of sperm it has a form of sperm. Oh, yeah, it does kind of look like that. Like the evolution of human life. Like, yeah, it's like... We see that. Through, which is not complete because we need... But maybe it doesn't have shape of human... Of sperm. Maybe only. you've just got something because going you on need in your head there. The ovule too, right? Not only sperm create life. So... Um, <laughs> You're going down a path that I'm not sure I want to follow you down. <laughs> no, I know, I know. Um, so that transition is like very interesting how all the symbolism of like one bone that transforms the bone is the tool and it transitions into another tool which is like the spaceship this big spaceship and that's the tool 
to reap the future too. Yes, to bring in the future. And then we meet um, this scientist, Dr. Dr. Bowman, and he's got a family, and we see that he's going up on some super secret mission. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting, like, it opens up on him, and it almost looks like he's in an airplane, like riding as a passenger in an airplane. Mm -hmm. And then you see this pen, like, float across the screen, and you mm -hmm. realize, okay, we're in space, and we're on this spaceship, and he's going up to this other like um, space station, right? Mm -hmm. And it's so funny. These women who serve him in, in when he's going up to the space station, they look like little mushrooms. Like they're wearing <laughs> all white and they've got these mushroom-like hats on. And um, I think their socks, like their shoes must have been weighted down because the way that the actresses walked, you could tell that yeah, they were really fighting heavy, against, yeah. yeah, they were fighting against something to stay locked on the ground, which didn't really make sense to me because if they had like, I wonder why he emphasizes on that. Yeah. Because it's, he did it on purpose. Why he wanted to show that they walk so slow. Maybe there, there is part of the spaceship that the gravity works different than yeah. other parts. Because well, yeah, because the pen was floating. So I guess we can assume that like so, gravity wasn't quite working in that part of so the spaceship. So that's why I think he wanted to show the difference between different spaces in the, in the spaceship. So where they were there, they needed, they had zero gravity and they needed uh -huh. weight just to... They needed weight to hold them to down. To be able to, yeah. I thought another interesting part was seeing the gross, like the really gross food that they would eat, the space food. And so they would have like different boxes of like, oh, peas, potatoes, chicken, like those things. And then they put straws into each mm. of the containers to slurp out the food, even though, like, because everything was a liquid. Yeah. I would, that's disgusting. But that's no, not the only food they had. They had real, not real, but they had more like, uh, not liquid, like solid sand food. Sandwiches. Like sandwiches. Like sandwiches, because they, yeah. said, they mentioned that there was not like not, real not thing. Not quite sandwiches. So... You know, in different places in the in the spaceship, they had different type of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wonder what it means the pen when he was sleeping and the pen was flying. So I think. Well, so I read that that was actually um, there's a pen company, and so you know when he goes into the station and you see that it's like the Hilton Space Station. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. like it's this sign of marketing because. The marketers were, we'll, we'll come to that. But anyway, this pen, it was, it was a brand of pen. Mm -hmm. And so I think Kubrick oh, got money okay. because for showing that brand of pen okay. floating. Okay. Um, and same thing with the Hilton. So um, right online about this, that Kubrick was testing it because they are filming it like, oh, it's 2001, we're in the future. And he wanted audiences who saw his film now to be able to watch it 30 years in the future and, and see if like those predictions that they made mm. about space were right. And we also know that this film was filmed and released before the Russians and the Americans made it to the moon and were kind of in this space race. Well, I found it was very interesting when Dr. Bowman finally gets to the space station and he checks in and he, he sits down with this group of other scientists who are mm -hmm. like, what, tell us about your mission, like, what are you doing up here? Did you notice that all of those people he was sitting with, they were Russian? Because yeah, yeah. they started speaking in Russian. And so I thought that that was interesting. They're asking him, like, hey, you're going to go up. And, like, there's been all these malfunctions with the technology up there. Like, tell us mm -hmm. about it. And then he goes, I'm sorry, I can't. That's classified information. Mm -hmm. I thought that that was kind of a representation of the American-Russian 
conflict. Like, mm, who would get to space first? Cold War. Yes, yeah. I thought it was very reminiscent of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually said it was interesting that Apollo 8 astronauts watched um, this film before going to space. And I wonder if it freaked them out a little bit. Oh. If It would freak me out to watch, like, black monoliths appearing and people dying and then be like, okay, up we go. Well, I think that, for me, like, the part that freaked me the most is, like, getting control, giving control to a computer over your life. It's like there is, like, an extra uh, passenger who's in charge of everybody's security. He can put, he can sustain life and he can terminate life. Yeah. So it's like, it's too powerful. So are you going to trust a computer and are you going to, well, it's crazy because what in the interview, somehow the the reporter, that guy, asked that if they are not afraid of that, like, do you think he has feelings or do you think like, so somehow it was putting yourself in the mood of something is going to happen here, maybe. Yeah. It's too human. Well, and it's really freaky how, like, when they do the news report on the movie, the reporter who's talking to the two astronauts, um, and he interviews Hal. Like, he interviews interviews the computer. And I think that's the first glimpse we get into, oh, wow, like, this computer has some freaky emotions. Like, it has some human qualities that maybe I'm not so comfortable with. Um, and that just reminds me, you know, of course, we're still talking about artificial intelligence in 2019 also, you know, they want to come out with self-driving cars and we know that our phones are listening to us and advertising to us. Um, it's so powerful and, and it, there is a big concern in the future for the moral behind that. Yeah, the ethics. The ethics because, um, and, and the day it, that is dangerous, right, that you can create something that it could destroy humanity uh, is not such a crazy thing if there is a way to create that level of intelligence that could make decisions and have feelings that would be you are creating life somehow yeah you are creating a new life and in this case we can relate to the moment when um, the main protagonist has to make the decision of like I'm going very ahead now but um, making the decision of disconnect part of the, that uh, Hal that is thinking, having emotions and things, he has to disconnect that because he killed a man, he killed not only one, all the, the men that were inside too. And he, Here, let's, let's lead up to that. Let's lead yeah. up to that. So Dr. Bowman gets, um, you know, they're going on this mission. They meet the Russians. We're not really sure what, you know, what the super secret mission is that they're going on. Yeah. But um, he goes up and they try to fix part of the space station. Well, it doesn't work, right? And then we see 18 months later, they're going on. No, 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 that's not right. They go to the moon and they find another black monolith yeah. on the moon. Yeah. That's what happens. And then they're looking at this black monolith and they're about, to, the astronauts get off and they're on the moon in front of this black monolith. Like, what the hell is this? And then a high-pitched noise well, He wanted to take off. a picture. Yeah. And apparently something there prevented that. Yeah. Well, they said later on that the black monolith was giving off radio emissions. And so radio is a form of, like, communicating. So it almost makes me wonder if, like, the black monolith on the Earth in the dawn of time was communicating with the black monolith 
on the moon then, or maybe it was the same one, mm-hmm. because we see that this film plays with space and time, yeah, and you're not really sure. A different uh, conception of time. Yeah, I think there's definitely a different concept of space mm-hmm. and time, and so we see that, and then 18 months later, they're going on this mission to Jupiter, and it's because mm-hmm. I think they mentioned that the radio emissions were headed towards Jupiter or something like that, so they're like, okay, yeah. we're going to regroup, and then we're going to get a new team, and we're going to go to Jupiter. Mm-hmm. To see what, what is there and yeah. why it is. And that's where they're putting most of their trust in the computer. How? Because there's four scientists on board who are trained separately. And um, they have, they're doctors. And they're uh, in hibernation mode. Yes. They're in hibernation. And how the computer system is kind of controlling all of their necessary functions. Like mm-hmm. their heartbeat, their air, um, you know, making sure all their organs work. And they're in hypo hypo-something chambers. So have you wondered why uh, Hal informed that uh, problem with that uh, part of the, of the spaceship? That why he did that? Why he did that? Why the machine said something false? Why, why he created that? Because it was a lie. There was nothing wrong with the thing they changed. Yeah. But the computers said that. You know what I just thought about? Maybe, because this is what we thought. We thought that there was a series of increasing intelligence, right? So it starts with the monkeys, and then it goes to human beings, to man, and then it goes to Hal, who's this artificial intelligence, but he's supposed to be perfect. He's supposed to be flawless, you know? And when they ask him about, like, the problems that he made, he goes, oh, like, it wasn't me. It was probably humans, because you all are stupid, and I'm the smart one mm-hmm. here, you know? And then beyond that is this black monolith, which might even be more intelligent or represent, you mm-hmm. know, beyond how. So what if the black monolith was giving off radio emissions that affected the way that how functioned? Mm-hmm. And so how was being controlled by this black monolith mm-hmm. at, as opposed to being, like, its own entity because Hal is kind of like half human like it has emotions and like some some human like qualities but it also has this super intelligence of the black monolith so it's this in-between space mm. and I just thought about that now it's an okay well, but theory. you know what it wasn't superior to the human because human was able to disconnect it so it wasn't superior so I wonder because the first thing is uh, how making question about like how do you feel about this mission because there were things that were not uh, clear from the beginning that that thing they found uh, or the weird things that happened in the moon mm-hmm. and they didn't give us information about that and so I wonder why he decided to create the false problem with that if it's to to survive only. Mm-hmm. Uh, One, he, Hal uh, says something along the lines of, I can't let humans interfere because this mission is too important. And that's why I thought... Oh, it's ego. It's an ego thing. Oh, yeah. he, so he is human. He has human qualities. He, yeah. He wanted to do it by himself. He wanted to read the point. Mm-hmm. And because human fail, and computers, they don't, he took. He wanted to do it well, just in case they made a mistake. Yeah, and so he's like, "I'm gonna they, kill off all these e- humans because they can't be trusted." Exactly. Its ego was like big and thinking that I'm better than them. I'm gonna make this happen. 
Yeah, I, I like. Maybe. I mean, I like that idea. We're all we're just theorizing. Yeah, it, I could, know. it could mean anything. It could. Yeah. It could mean nothing. It could all mean nothing. Because we <laughs> talk about that the, the feeling of power every time, like like the monkeys having power, mm-hmm. and they ended up killing another monkey when um, Hal had power mm-hmm. because he was superior. He felt he was superior. Mm-hmm. He killed the man. He was going to use his tools. To kill man, just like the monkeys at the beginning were going to be killed. Wait, he did it. He killed. Yeah, he killed all of them. Um, Not all, but. Well, so how does he start killing them? He he starts by like he asks Doctor Bowman. He's like, so tell me, do you have reservations about this mission we're on? You know, and then Doctor Bowman kind of goes, "How are you trying to conduct a psychological study on me right now? Like mm. a psychological health study on me?" And he goes, "Yes, yes, I am." Um, and a creepy thing about Hal's voice. Um, just a production choice that I noted. They said in notes that um, Hal's voice was supposed to be semi-effeminate. So it's supposed to represent kind of this emotional thing. You know, Mm. so already Hal's been giving these human qualities like he's got ego he's got an effeminate voice mm-hmm. he he is going into the psychological things he takes power he misuses mm-hmm. power all human qualities um and i thought his voice reminded me of the actor kevin spacey mm-hmm. like if you go back and watch the movie and you listen to hal's voice you're just like that's kevin spacey's voice yeah. like that is 100 percent kevin spacey's voice which is perfect it's perfect for his like evil persona oh, um i wish it was kevin spacey anyway <laughs> sidebar sidebar off um well as yeah. soon as um they find found that he was lying that hall was lying it was lying it was a machine um they tried to have a private conversation about what they were gonna do because from yeah Earth, the, the two scientists who are awake yeah so how many people are on this ship there's six people four doctors who are in the hypo chronic whatever chambers and they're sleeping because Hal's keeping them alive and then the two scientists Dr. Bowman and the other guy and they're yeah. both they're the only ones who are awake with Hal yeah. and so they go into they went somewhere a capsule where they can talk and the computer cannot listen to them uh, to discuss about what they were told because before that they, they from the earth they get the message that there was no problem with the the device they replace, but there is a problem with the computer that it has a problem because the like the twin in the earth detected that the that computer the their hull had a problem, so they found out that he lied about the failure in that device, so they had to. They wanted to have a private conversation about that, so they get inside. They got inside the capsule. They tr- they tested if the computer could listen to them, and they saw that it couldn't. But there was a, a glass window where the computer could read their lips. So the computer found out that the plan, because they talk about the how insecure they f- they feel about that. Yeah, they, they don't com- trust the computer. They don't trust anymore. the computer, so they they made the decision of disconnect that part of the computer that has a, a self, right? To say it in a way. So, and the computer discovered that, and when they go to replace that part, that by the way is a suggestion of the same computer. Yeah. Um, the computer cut 
the oxygen. Yeah. How how tells them that there's a problem with a different part of the spaceship, and he like makes it up. Because yeah. then he wants them to go out there and replace the No, no, the no it was the same. He oh, it was the same one. Yeah, okay, his okay. suggestion was put it back and let's see if it fails again. And we have now more information about why it's failing. Yeah. And so they trust him and they go and do it. And well, not- yeah. Somehow they didn't figure out that he was like setting, in, setting everything uh, to exterminate them. He, yeah, he was actually like, I'm going to get ready to kill these humans. Yeah, um, because they want to kill me. That's the thing. Exactly. They want to disconnect me, so I'm going to kill them first. Mm. Um, so in short, I guess what ends up happening is the guy who's the other space guy goes out, and he's there to replace his part, and he's in his spacesuit. Well, Hal takes control of the pod that's outside of the spaceship and uses it to clip the oxygen of the other scientist, and he goes flying into space, and then Dr. Bowman sees that, gets into another pod, goes out, rescues, you know, gets mm-hmm. the body of the man, but we already know he's dead. Like, there's no way he's alive. And then there is, like, a very nice take where the spaceship is in front of the small capsule, and they are talking to each other. And, and it's, like, to... Yeah, two. the pod that Dr. Bowman's in and the spaceship. Yeah, it's like two things talking. They're, like, they're inside, but it's like talking in the middle of the space. It's like so powerful. Yeah, and it's a confrontation between Hal and Dr. Bowman outside in space in his pod. It's like being, looking at one being honest. It's like, we are going to tell the truth right now. I know mm-hmm. you want to disconnect me. And the other guy knows that he had killed uh, his um, colleague. Yeah. So they have to talk about that. They're on. They're being totally honest. They have like, I know you're gonna disconnect me. And Doctor Bowman goes, I'm gonna get in. I'm gonna get in using this emergency air shuttle. He literally tells him exactly what's gonna happen. And I wasn't sure how I felt about that because he said that I, I thought he was asking for something to get more oxygen, and then he said like. No way. Well, he wanted to be let in, but Hal was like, I'm not going to let uh, you in. I didn't understand that part. Yeah. yeah. He was like, let me in, Hal. I'm not, I'm not joking around. I'm giving you an order. And Hal's like, sorry, dude. Like, you're not getting in. But that was at the end. when Because at the beginning, he said, I, I, I want to get more oxygen. or some, He said something. And he said, no, that's not going to happen. And then they kept talking till the computer forced him I know that you want to exterminate it. I read the li- your lips when you were talking. Mm-hmm. So now every- the- all the information is out there. And-, and he said, okay, now I'm giving you the order. Just do it. Do what." And the machine said that there is no point of going with this conversation. And that is all. Um, so yeah. Oh, how goes this conversation's over? Yeah. And then Dr. Bowman sneaks in through the emergency air exit and he he sets like the self-destruct on the pot off so it shoots him into the emergency air exit even though he's not wearing like a space helmet yeah and then he shuts the emergency air puts on the space helmet he's able to sneak back into the spaceship mm-hmm. by this time hal has already killed the four scientists who were oh, asleep yeah. he just totally cuts off their functions so those people are dead the other scientist who was awake besides dr bowman is dead so dr bowman's the only one alive out there in space by himself and he is able to get into the chamber where how um his mechanics are set up and he uses this key and he slowly pulls out all of these operational functions discs you know kind of like mm-hmm. in star wars mm-hmm. um so that Hal is slowly losing his intelligence. And you can tell he almost like... 
gradually, yeah. And it's gradual, his existence stops the computers, but it, it reminds me of kind of the theme of the circle of life in this movie because how right now he interacts with them at a scientist level. Like he's older, more mature. You know, he interacts with them on a very educated level. Yeah. He's playing chess. I wonder why he didn't try to. Sorry, I interrupted. Oh no, no, no! You're fine. Why he didn't try? Like the Hal didn't try to do something else to prevent him. To yeah, I felt like that was kind of a plot. Like hole. why? Why he he killed other people with no problem? Now, what is why? What happened with that this doctor that he didn't do it? Maybe he felt like a father. He felt him like a father, and or you know, mm-hmm. but because after that he started behaving like a child. It yes. hurts. Well, it yes, hurts. Yeah. Well, I think this, I think he was removing some of the functions, and that was my point with the circle of life. He was like getting younger. Yeah. How the computer was mm-hmm. older, and then as he, as Doctor Bowman tried to kill him and release the disc so that he couldn't function properly, he was getting younger and younger yeah, and younger and younger. Yeah, but from him apologizing yes like he's using human manipulation but right from the beginning when he when the doctor enter managed to enter he said I, I know I've done things I, I had poor I made poor decisions but I've changed I realized what I did mm-hmm. so what made the computer change from aggressiveness to I regret oh he was lying you don't know because he could have done if he wasn't if he was lying he could have killed him so maybe he regretted really because he was kind of human at some point he was and he I guess, killed and then but we don't know we don't know well we don't know I but, guess then, he can't but, know. but you know yeah. he was like ready to kill everyone and when this guy enter managed to enter he was in control of all the the spaceship he could have just turned things off mm-hmm. everything or whatever, but he stopped the aggressiveness, aggressiveness at some point and became a child. Yeah. So I wonder what made that turn. Well, how became a child because Dr. Bowman was slowly killing him by removing No, but that started before. You mean like why he was regretful? Because from the moment the doctor entered to the the the, the spaceship again, uh-huh. they start. You know, there is a moment that he's walking and it's all red in both eyes. Uh-huh. Be, just before he started doing that with the keys, and he has a different speech now. I think it's total manipulation. Like you think that the computer actually. But why, But but it could be manipulation. But he could have when he was right ready to kill him kill him he could have done something so that's my doubt that was really really a manipulation or was like not killing one of i don't know not killing dr bowman yeah was that like or regretting yeah i realized i screw up and i realized how bad it is and you know if it's a child a child realizes things later and apologize i don't know but yeah, I feel that, that I was... think we're just going to take totally different views on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be like so many interpretations. But it was funny yeah. to see the change of speech. Um, for me, it was there was a stop of aggressiveness from the artificial intelligence. At it wasn't point. as aggressive anymore. No, it was a different approach. I'm what? not going to kill that guy and yeah. beg for survival. But then, I mean, the human ends up killing Hal. But then what happens right after that? Is that when he gets pulled into the, he gets kind of pulled into the, the trippy space-time continuum? When he's finishing 
to disconnect the, the computer, he gets the video. You arrive to Saturn. And yes. now you're going to get information that we couldn't give you the before. The pre-recorded video, yeah. So and the space station people who sent him to Jupiter on this mission, like as soon as he kills Hal, a pre-recorded video comes up. And I almost wonder if killing Hal was the trigger. Hmm. The trigger to release the pre-recorded video. Maybe not. But what's the pre-recorded video say? Well, the trigger was like the, he reached... Reach he reached Saturn, Jupiter. Jupiter. So right, okay. So he gets to Jupiter, the pre-recorded message comes on. And then he was right in front of the thing he needed to find. Yeah, but what was the pre-recorded message? The pre-recorded message was like, you didn't have all the information, yeah. and the information you need to know is that you were there, because we found a piece... Um, of the uh, black monolith. The, yeah, that and we don't know there. what it is, ah. but well, the only thing we know is that the transmission was between the, the moon, the moon and, and Jupiter and Jupiter so you are there to connect to the other part of that yeah so yeah. and then he got the information and you can see him like in front of the like um, it's almost like a kaleidoscope driving the, yeah you, say, like, you see him in the spaceship and then all of a sudden there's like this kaleidoscope of changing colors and you can see he's kind of shooting through what you think is like a black hole but there's all these different colors mm. and you see his face is just like tripping out and it's it's a really weird scene and i think that's why they were saying in the late 1960s 70s people were using acid people were tripping out mm. in movie theaters all the time so they would literally but, but that's more related to how people would the cosmos and what you can find out there. Yes. I think this like it was know, not really acid at all. Or like different type of materia that with different lights and, and different colors, different all the scientific have have found around there. It's not it, it could be a mix of maybe like, what's really the, interesting to me is that I think I think scientifically there there's not any color in space, right? Because there's nothing for light to reflect off of. And so it's interesting to me that they're in Jupiter and he starts going down this black hole and then there's there all this light color. In, there, there is color in the space. Mark has a color. Well it has a color because the sun's like rays Wait, okay, now we're back. Hopefully that recorded all that. Okay. Um, and we'll have to wrap it up pretty soon because I gotta go. Okay. But, um, so he goes and he, like, lands in this Victorian era hotel. Oh, that hotel was so unexpected. Almost. That was so weird. He goes through the space-time and continuum. And oh. gradually becomes, like, older. Yeah, he like, ages. He's, he he's ages. like, aging really quickly in yeah. this Victorian era hotel. And then, like, at the very end, he becomes this old man and he's lying in this bed and then he becomes what, like a fetus. Mm, yeah. And what? What did we decide that that would represent the full circle of life, right? Well, the the first interesting thing for me in that part, well, the hotel. Uh, I have to figure out till I don't get the like, hotel. Yeah, it did. It felt like when he got through the space time continuum, it felt like he landed in like a Victorian looking mm -hmm. hotel. Maybe it was the Hilton. It was the Hilton in the future. <laughs> but but then the different. And like every time, like the different, the time passed so fast that by the time he was observing his first impression of the hotel, he was already older and having some food. And by the time the glass fell on the floor and he was freaking out what happened, he turned and he saw himself in the bed dying. And then he mm -hmm. became the fetus. So it's like the, the idea of time and space it's different totally manipulated it's uh, not the human concept of time and space exactly. 
Um, well, so that's really interesting. But so it ends with this fetus, like looking at the earth. And I think we're supposed to be like, you know, thinking about like the point of life and how did we get here and the rebirth, the rebirth, like all of those big questions that this black monolith, this enigma is forcing us to think about. Um, maybe yeah. it's the, the fundamental question of what we are doing here on earth. What, why we are I, alive, yeah. why, where the cosmos, the, you know, what question I have. Where is the intelligence? Is there any higher intelligence my question is why the end of that movie was so trippy because that's what audiences came out wondering too they were like we don't even understand the end of this movie but and when Kubrick was writing it with Arthur C. Clarke he kept changing his mind about what he wanted the end of this movie to be and I think the end of this movie kind of represents that indecision um but maybe that's a good thing for me it was brilliant it's like the rebirth Mm -hmm. if if they didn't put if they changed that in a different way it would be only apocalyptic somehow. But the moment they decide to put that fetus looking at the earth and opening the, its eyes bright, uh, no, white, sorry, um, you could see like the hope, like this is the cycle of life, like rebirth. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that, you don't have hope. It's like, I don't know, without that, it's like, well, Death. So we're going to con- we're going right? to conclude this by saying there is hope. There is rebirth. Yeah. Watch 2001 a Space Odyssey and and let us know if you think there's hope in rebirth. Ugh. Um okay, we need to wrap this up. All right, this has been Hannah and Gabby and we watch movies. <laughs> we watch movies and talk about them. We would like to say that no monkeys or computers were harmed in the in the recording of this video. <laughs> in the recording of this podcast. Goodbye.